This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Six months to the day since Netanyahu returned to office and reality like in a time lapse seems to move much, much faster. The events of this week, no different. A lot to go through and we will try to make sense of it all. It's Unholy. I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. I have to say, it's been a little bit of a challenge for me to focus on the news <laughs> this week, because I have been engaged, unusually for me, some might say, in devoting serious amounts of time to sporting activities. Not playing, I hasten to add, but instead watching. Um, nevertheless, the unholy uh, duties never rest and never sleep. And so I, even when I was watching the sport, I was thinking, this is going to make a great item for unholy. Just what is, you keep saying the sport. Can we talk about this for a minute before we dive into so much news going on? Yeah, we can. I was at Lord's Cricket Ground, which as every uh, listener will know, is the uh... home of cricket for the greatest sporting rivalry that exists. Namely, England versus Australia, the Ashes, as the uh, storied series is known. And I was thinking, wow, this is bad in a way because I'm off duty. This should be unholy. When I got a message telling me um, that I must attend and visit the museum there because there is a display on cricket and Jews. And sure enough, there is. If you go to Lord's Cricket Ground, you don't have to have a ticket for the game. You can wait till after the match. Just go to Lord's Cricket Ground. You can go to the museum and there's a display there of items of significant to cricket and Jews. There are the batting pads, the sort of protective equipment a cricketer wears that belong to playwright Harold Pinter, a great Jewish enthusiast for the game. And then this kills me. Mandy Yachad, South African international player of some stature, wore it. Ritual <laughs> prayer garment when playing the game. They are in a glass case for your display. And then this, this is the thing that I'm going to just um, tell you because I think you'll love this. Um, while at the game, um, a message arrived, forwarded on WhatsApp saying, Good morning, Minyan confirmed to start five minutes after the tea interval begins. <laughs> Meet in the multi-faith room to Daven uh mincha and mariv i mean it's sort of extraordinary um the point is jews and cricket i've often said it's particularly orthodox jews who love cricket i've said this without really much of a a, a sort of data set if i'm honest but the rules there are so many rules to the game of cricket often very arcane and they remind me, as a cricket and fan, of the rules of kashrut, the dietary laws at defining what's kosher and what isn't. Uh, you know, there are always exceptions. There are these bizarre, arcane little details. Um, no wonder Orthodox Jews love cricket. It's basically sort of kashrut on a field. Um, and... Uh, 
it's a it's a good, joyous game. England did not play so brilliantly the day I was there, but the uh, the point is my hunch, my intuition that cricket is a very fundamentally Jewish game confirmed by my visit to Lords and listen to that name, even invoking the Almighty. Uh, in, in, in confirmed <laughs> by my visit to Lords, the Great Jewish Museum there, hmm. and look, there are even prayers at the appropriate time if you go. Okay, so I just want to say, firstly, you are so so english johnny freeland it's it's really we can't escape that fact if someone wanted to deny it or try you know that's first but first of all a very elegant sport you must say um i always had this feeling like jewish mothers would agree for their sons to play cricket because they can't really get hurt that much right what was uh bill bryson's line about cricket that the spectators burn more calories than people actually playing <laughs> um so yeah one day you'll take me to lords to see but i have to tell you there's also an israeli cricket association just if you were wondering fun fact i think gerald kessel who was once the cnn correspondent in jerusalem captained that team at some point so lots of stuff i'm very glad we took this this scenic route to the beginning of our program and i have actually it is nearly 40 years ago i have actually seen the israel national cricket are we any good are we any good because i definitely didn't i'm not so sure maybe maybe there's been improvement um in the 40 years that have passed but um uh, no, you don't have to say the truth. Tell the truth all the time is what I'm saying. Always. That's the rule okay. on Unholy. You're right. That was the scenic route. Um, meanwhile, the news has not stopped at all. No, it never uh, seems to stop uh, for sure. So let's uh, begin with what is happening in Israel and in particularly in uh, the West Bank after the terror attack in Ali last Wednesday. Four Israelis were murdered uh, next to the settlement. What we've been seeing really is uh, rampages, string of settler attacks against Palestinian villages, burning homes, uh, uh, towns in revenge of the terror attack. And on Saturday evening, these events led to a very uh, rare occasion in which uh, the three chiefs or heads of the security branches in Israel basically published a joint statement. It's the IDF chief of staff, Herzi Alevi, the Shin Bet head, Ronen Bar, and the police commissioner, Kobi Shabtai. And this is what they said. It reads as follows. I think it's important to, to kind of read it word for word. In recent days, violent attacks have been carried out by Israelis in Judea and Samaria against innocent Palestinians, they write. These attacks contradict every moral and Jewish value. They constitute in every way nationalist terrorism, and we are obliged to fight them. Now, this is what uh, uh, came out, and parts of the Netanyahu government, the more, let's say, far-right parts of uh, his government, particularly Orit Struk from religious Zionism, was very, very upset that the head of uh, the Israeli branches dared in her eyes to call this uh, terrorism. And she said, uh, who are they to preach us? Who are they to put out this announcement under our noses? Are they the Wagner group? That is what she called them, basically comparing the head of uh, security branches in Israel to mercenaries uh, trying to overthrow Putin. Which is shocking uh, language in itself. I mean, again, uh, we've talked last week in our chutzpah award or the other day anyway of one of the religious ultra-religious parties um daring to criticize those who don't serve as if unaware that the ultra-orthodox themselves do not serve i know orit struck is not from that universe but nevertheless uh for settlers who have relied often for their day-to-day -day security and protection uh, on the idf to then call these people mercenaries when they are very often risking young people, 18, 19 years old, conscripts, 
risking their lives so that some of these people can live in these very far out settlements in very provocative locations. It seems to me, you know, illegal settlements, I would say. It seems to me, um, uh, well, it's beyond chutzpah. It's an outrageous thing for her to have said. And, and of course, a few hours after she said uh, what she said, uh, IDF Brigadier Commander in the uh, Northwest Bank, Colonel Eliav Elbaz, was verbally attacked by extreme settlers while visiting a family of one of those Israelis murdered at Eli. They called him a traitor and a murderer. And then what we saw is the IDF Chief of Staff actually having to say yesterday at a graduation ceremony, whoever berated the IDF should remember that, remember that even an apology cannot cancel the damage done. Now, look, Look, we have to say this, even in unpredictable Israel, unscripted Israel, all of what I've described is highly irregular. It is highly irregular for the heads of the uh, branches, security branches, to put out this kind of statement. It's highly irregular for a minister to talk against uh, them in such a way. And it's pretty highly irregular for settlers, even if they're very upset, to yell at top uh, military brass. And of course, for the IDF chief of staff to actually single out a minister and say, you shouldn't have said that. All of this just sort of illustrating how high tensions are on ground. Yeah, I, I was really struck by that address mm-hmm. uh, from the IDF chief of staff, Herzl Halevi. I thought that those re- comments rebuking uh, the right were one thing, but also saying that any officer who stands by as a citizen of Israel, while a citizen of Israel torches uh, a home of a Palestinian, cannot be an officer. Mm-hmm. That they are unfit to serve if people uh, stand by and allow these sorts of attacks to go on. Any officer who sees an Israeli citizen intending to throw a Molotov cocktail at a Palestinian house and stands idly by cannot be an officer. And you remember, you know, I remember the IDF commander on the ground saying that attack again by J- Jewish settlers on the Palestinian community of Huwara were engaged in a pogrom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, well, it recalls to me some of the conversation that was going on, including on this podcast, um, early on in the when the street protests about the judicial overhaul, which we'll come to, were going on, saying, you know, civil war, does, you know, how, is that plausible? Is it possible in this country? And, you know, the president himself warning, saying anyone who thinks civil war is not a possibility is not paying attention. Mm-hmm. When you have the military branch talking like this to their citizens, fellow citizens, you know, at least to me, it conjured up that image. And in a way, I mean, Orit Struck invoking the Wagner group is sort of pressing the same button. Yeah. And, and, you know, all this is going on. Uh, you mentioned this, right? The military is protecting Israeli citizens and all this is going on. Well, there's still Palestinian terror and the heads of security branches are saying to the settler leaders, we can't protect you. If you have these youngsters going every evening into Palestinian villages, something terrible might happen and you have to notice this. So this is what is happening in that regard. But of course, everything else is also in turmoil. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit about, I mean, we've been talking about, about this for many weeks now, of course, the judicial overhaul and this feeling that we had like the coalition is freezing it or freezing parts of it. And now it is back on the table. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu saying quite clearly to the Wall Street Journal in an interview, he's saying, look, I'm kicking out, I'm throwing out, I think were his exact words, the override clause that Netanyahu says is off the table. Right after the original proposal was put forward, I said that the idea of an override clause where the 
the parliament, the Knesset, can override the decisions of the Supreme Court with a simple majority, I threw that out. It's, it's out. Uh, and, I, I, and I think we, it's, very, it's very clear that the way of choosing judges, it's not going to be the current structure, but it's not going to be the original structure. By the way, he sort of already said this in Hebrew, but this is, uh, let's say there are parts of the coalition that are very upset at this and saying that this is backtracking and in some way sending a white flag uh, to the opposition. But besides that, we should say that this coalition is going to push forward what we have been talking about, the reasonableness clause. That will probably see itself getting approved by the end of this uh, Knesset uh, session, which is the end of July. And that alone is significant. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, you know, he will want to say, and I think it's very significant that he gave the interview to the Wall Street Journal. He, I think he wants a message to go out mm -hmm. to the international community. Yeah, don't worry, guys. I dropped all that horrible stuff that had you comparing me to Viktor Orban. That's all gone. Now we're into just a few procedural things. Don't worry. But if that business of the reasonable clause, if the, if the move on that remains in place... In other words, removing the Supreme Court's ability to strike down those decisions it regards as unreasonable. Well, then that power grab has still happened. Um, uh, you know, but I think it does look to me like a move to get that, und you know, sort of get that past international opinion. Talking of which, by the way, I should have mentioned that the, you know, all this stuff we talked about earlier going on is being noticed internationally. I mean, it's not as if what goes on in Israel stays in Israel, if you like. And this week, I thought significant, the Financial Times newspaper, which is, you know, cannot be faulted as just another, you know, predictable critic of Israel always was, etc. It can't be said of that. And a paper with serious international influence uh, in its editorial uh, called on Western countries to at least increase the possibility the, or the threat, uh, depending on how you see it, of taking action against uh, settler violence in the West Bank, Jewish settler violence in the West Bank, including with the threat of a boycott of products made in the settlements. It wrote, given the gravity of what is happening, Washington and European capitals should take a tougher line. That means threatening to ban imports of goods uh, produced in the settlements. You know, this is a perennial issue, um, the notion of boycotts and, you know, boycott of Israel itself, BDS so-called, but very specifically ones targeted. And to see a newspaper like the FT raise this because they have noticed the violence going on, uh, just I think is an indicator that this stuff is uh, is not go going by uh, unremarked. People yep. are, you know, exaggerations say the world is watching, but people who think about these things are noticing. Yes, well, the world is watching uh, the West Bank and Judea and Samaria, and the world is also watching very closely what Netanyahu is doing with the judicial overhaul. We talked about the reasonableness clause, which is important, right? That doctrine that says that the Supreme Court, the common law in Israel, the Supreme Court can override a decision that is extremely unreasonable. For example, we saw this only a few months ago, the decision to make recurring tax offender a minister again, Arya Deri, and the Supreme Court, the High Court of Justice, saying basically this is un unreasonable. Now, uh, Shlomo Kari, who's the Minister of Communication, kind of let the cat out of the bag yesterday in an interview with Channel 12. He said, look, I think we should fire the Attorney General in Israel, but we can't do that as long as the reasonableness clause is still intact. We should remind maybe our listeners that the Attorney General is both the chief prosecutor in Israel and an advisor to the government, Gali Barav Miara, which means if you actually fire her, which a lot of people in the coalition think you should do, 
uh, while Netanyahu is still on trial, if anyone can convince uh, someone that that's reasonable, uh, if they fire her, uh, then you can open up the trial, you can do all kinds of things. And Netanyahu was very quick to say, no, 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 I have any, nothing to do with that, it's not my suggestion, but you understand why the uh, reasonableness clause is such an important issue. And again, it begs the question, why is Netanyahu returning to this legislation. You know, we saw the protests, we saw the pressure from Washington. Why return to this? I think the answer is first uh, that he thinks that he can convince the protesters that it's not a big deal, right? That it's reasonable for him to think that the reasonableness clause is not huge. Do you see what I did there, right? But also... I did, but in a way, they're the same move that he's trying to pull internationally. Right. So just saying it's technical it's the and sa- it, Right. It's the same thing, right? I'm trying to say, no, 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 it's just a little, it's a minute thing. I, I had a huge plan. I'm just passing this and maybe something about the appointments judicial committee but that's it right um and the rest i'm throwing away as he said but um but so it's that and it's also that we have figured out in these six months that yariv levine and his supporters whether they be in the likud or religious zionism all think that this should be reformed that the judiciary should be um some would say weakened, um, they're stronger than we thought and the many Israelis thought. And he is very wary of what he can do and what he can't do. He is stuck between, again, a rock and a hard place or a hard and a harder place. Yes. I mean, I think that temptation to think of them as a sort of fringe Mm -hmm. um, and that he only really had pressure from one direction, the anti-reform direction, was mistaken. And as you say, there is pressure the other way Mm-hmm. Two, uh, I wondered uh, um, and sort of thought for a moment that, that where you might have been going with that in saying why does he persist in doing this was related perhaps to the point you're making about the Attorney General and the fact that he has his own case uh, and that therefore that if the unreasonable clause bit is struck down that mm-hmm. would allow the appointment of people who have had convictions or trouble with the law yes as ministers but maybe even as prime minister and therefore does he i mean questioned mm-hmm. is part of the point on this business this very specific point about reasonableness clause that he has skin in that game given that he has as it were business before the court <laughs> in this in the notion that he is himself on trial yeah. could that be part of yes it? many would say that the the issue here is that indeed since he is uh, uh, on trial uh, these days we will talk about his trial in a, in a few minutes that that is a very problematic thing to do and can be uh, by the courts uh, uh, directed as being extreme unreasonableness for him to go anywhere near firing the the attorney general so this is all very very um, very careful uh, uh, sort of wording here that we should that really we should notice. So we're talking about this case of his, and rather dramatically, it moved to Britain this week um, with uh, a courtroom scene played out, not in London actually, in the seaside town of Brighton, where the uh, film mogul and supposed very deep and close friend of uh, Netanyahu, Arnon Milchen, testified in uh, the, that trial from a courtroom in Brighton. He, he had told the court that he was too ill to travel to Israel itself. He couldn't appear in London because he, it was said there was a better venue in Brighton, better in terms of guaranteeing security and so on, and that he would provide testimony there remotely from that closed court i mean the drama of it was twofold first protesters outside there's some video in in circulating uh, of showing the protesters outside uh 
there and present to barrack and sort of hassle uh Sarah Netanyahu and that's the second part of the drama she had flown in to be present in the courtroom uh, the defense team said she was there to help uh, jog the memory of the witness just in case he was a little rusty on the details helpfully and kindly Sarah Netanyahu was present uh, to just put, fill in the odd gaps in the memory that might appear. Those people, and of course I make no connection uh, here at all, but those people who are steeped in Hollywood courtroom dramas will remember that one of the great devices uh, you know, of, of those fictional, wholly fictional stories is that the witness who is about to testify against, say, and this happens in one film, the great, you know, the mafia kingpin, uh, the witness is about to spill the beans and just seconds before they take the stand, an associate of said Mafia Kingpin comes into the courtroom and doesn't need to do or say anything. But just by being there has the power to intimidate the witness. Um, as I say, I make no connection at all between that and events in Brighton, but there is a famous Hollywood trope on those lines. Uh, as it turned out, I think Milchin... Uh, his tes testimony about the business of giving gifts to Netanyahu in return for favours um, was, observers noted, milder and diluted somewhat from the testimony he had given earlier on record to the police. Uh, and, you know, whether or not that was due to the presence of a certain uh, well-known spouse in the courtroom, of course, one can only guess. But uh, high drama, and especially with those protesters uh, chanting the now faint, you know, trademark phrase uh, or chant of Bouchard, shame to Sarah Netanyahu as she went in and out of this venue, which actually wasn't a courtroom, it was just a sort of venue that had been used for this process. Yes. Well, first of all, we, we need to say that this case against Netanyahu is one out of three. It's case one, 1000. As you say, uh, Netanyahu receiving gifts from Hollywood mogul uh, Arnon Milchen in return for political favor. So the charges against Netanyahu are a fraud and breach of trust. I, I would say that the, def the defense has a bit of an issue here, a bit of a problem, because if you're saying and what they're trying to say, right, is that Milchen and Netanyahu were intensely close friends. And that is why Sarah Netanyahu is there too, right? You know, uh, uh, kissing him on the cheek before the before his testimony starts to show, to illustrate to everyone that they are indeed very good friends. So what's a little bit of champagne and maybe some jewelry and, you know, um, cigars between friends? You know, what's the big deal? But if that is the case, and they are indeed very, very good friends, then Netanyahu shouldn't have been anywhere near helping Milchen out in things like uh, what has been dubbed the Milchen Law, which is tax exemption for for Israelis returning to Israel and other things. So it is, is, it's still a problematic case for Netanyahu, even if, as you mentioned, uh, Milchen sounded a little more reluctant uh, in his testimony than he did uh, in front of police investigators. Netanyahu got some good news this week in another case against him, case 4000, in which uh, the judges in the district court of Jerusalem suggested the prosecution withdraw the bribery charges in that case against Netanyahu. It doesn't say anything about the charges of fraud and breach of trust, but it was very good news for Netanyahu. All this leads me just to point out to you on the calendar, Jonathan, that in something between February and May, defendant number one, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, will have to step up 
and begin his uh, testimony in front of the court. That can take about three weeks. There's a lot of speculation in the, in the political circles. He wouldn't want to get to that situation. He wouldn't want to testify. And that's where a lot of people are actually talking, again, about the issue of, of plea bargaining. And just w- why give us the reasoning of the judges who said that bribery charge should be pulled? What, what was their... Well, it, it, it looks like uh, what they are saying, again, they, didn't, they, they suggested that the prosecution withdraw that specific charge. Again, there, there's also the charge of fraud and breach of trust. It was always a very complicated case or probably the most complicated charge to prove the charge of bribery because what you're actually saying here is that the bribe or what he received in return is favorable coverage. And so maybe it seems like, and again, they didn't give their reasoning. This was a closed uh, discussion. Uh, that was was leaked, so they didn't give their reasoning. Uh, it's it's highly irregular, but it looks like they weren't convinced that it can lead to a conviction uh, in bribery. They didn't say anything about the rest of the charges. So there's that prospect for uh, for him looming in 2024. I mean, the diary is getting pretty crammed for 2024. I mean, you know, there's a UK election, but much more significantly for Israel, an American presidential election that's the last thing he's going to want to be doing uh in that in 2024 um right it's the last thing he'd want to do the first thing maybe or one of the first things he want to do is to meet president biden and that invite has yet to arrive by the way the president of the state of israel itzhak herzog will be uh, uh in the white house july 18th if i'm not mistaken now when you look at what netanyahu is doing we should add into the mix the fact that his office um said this week that that netanyahu would soon visit china now this all begs the question right if you want to get an invite from the white house and look at what you are doing one you are advancing the judicial legislation which you know upsets washington right i mean the white house has said this more than once you're pushing Pushing forward uh, a construction of settlements, uh, you are, it doesn't seem to be uh, pushing back against settler violence. And on top of all that, you're now talking about going to China, not uh, the U.S.'s best friend. So what is happening here? I mean, I would always say that, um, that it's, it's, it's important in life to look at children because children are very intelligent. The way they behave is interesting. You can go one out of two ways if you want to get your parents' attention. You can get the positive attention, be the good kid, do your homework, clean your room, etc., or you can get the negative attention. It's still attention, right? If you, for example, mess up your room, expand into other rooms and make them messy as well. I don't know where these examples come from. But that is, I think, some of what Netanyahu is trying to do. He's always someone who liked having leverage. And this leverage is saying, look, I have friends in other places in the world. Now, look what you can do for me. Yeah, it's the squeaky uh, wheel that gets the oil. And he is, uh, I think you're right, he's realizing, okay, I might as well be the squeaky wheel here and be a problem Mm -hmm. for this White House where they'll think, what are we going to do? That day, July 18th, with the visit of President Herzog, that's going to be absolutely a dagger in the heart for Netanyahu. He won't be able to bear those pictures of Herzog there ahead of him in receiving that invitation. I, also, I mean, I mentioned, I think, on a previous episode, I do think there is there is po- political benefit to being America's best buddy. I mean, domestic political benefit. Mm-hmm. And if you can't have that, well, then there's domestic political reward in being the guy who stands up to the Israel-hating Democrats, you know, in the mental universe of the Israeli right. 
um, you know, there's no reward in being nothing, in being sort of vanilla, or in fact being a doormat who Biden can just walk over and, and repeatedly insult by refusing to invite. So if you're not going to get the invitation, at least get credit with your right wing base for being for poking a finger in the eye of Joe Biden. And so I think mm. there's also that it's about getting American attention. But I also think there's a, a domestic political reward right. he'll be hoping for right. uh, by by playing not, you know, by playing tough with the Americans. Right. I'm going to I'm going to ignore the fact that you dissed vanilla for some reason. But I will say that look <laughs> at what he's doing uh, internally. Right. He approved more than a thousand uh, units in the West Bank. The procedures for advancing new construction have been accelerated. The authority of all this has been given to Bezalel Smotrich none of this is making Washington happy, but it is making Bezalel Smotrich happy, and that is good enough for the stability of the coalition at this, at this junction. Yeah, and let's face it, he needs that coalition to be stable because he'll be taking one look at those uh, opinion polls and knows that, you know, elections are not good news for him because he and his uh, governing partners would do badly. Um, look, he's international relations. It does not end just with the dynamic with the United States as there's other things. Uh, I thought the uh, Wall Street Journal interview uh, was interesting for what it also included uh, about Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, comments from Netanyahu on that. You know, the last weekend, the world was watching this Wagner attempted coup uh, with Prigozhin, uh, his attempt to march on Moscow, as it were. And I, I had conversations after that with, um, you know, two or three different sort of either with policymakers, either current or former. And the conversation got on to this Israel's sort of tightrope walk on Russia and Ukraine. And, um, and the sense that this can't hold forever, mm-hmm. uh, that the moment is coming where uh, you know, Israel's position of trying to sort of remain, walk this balancing act between the two uh, will will run out. Um, we've talked before on the podcast that, you know, why Israel has to do it, that on the one hand, it needs to stay friendly with Moscow because of Russia's role in Syria and the granting of a free hand to Israel in doing what it what needs and wants to do in Syria. Mm-hmm. But international pressure with Putin looking weaker, uh, you know, weakened by the, in some ways, humiliating coup against him and his failure to severely punish those uh, who perpetrated it. Uh, I don't know. I think, um, you know, Israel is in some kind of uh, a dilemma with Ukraine. It's been one of the countries that has found it hardest to know how to handle uh, that situation. Yeah, and look, you, you, you look at what Netanyahu is saying to the Wall Street Journal. He's saying, we have concerns I don't think any of our Western allies, the Western allies of Ukraine has. He, of course, talks, and you mentioned this, uh, the freedom of, of action uh, Israel needs in, in Syria. And he also says that he, he's concerned that Israel weaponry can be captured in the Ukrainian battlefield and turned over to Iran, which is very interesting. Because on one hand, it's like we need to be play nice with Russia on the Syrian border, but we don't want uh, uh, the whole relationship with Iran and Russia Russia to grow warmer and some of the weaponry can fall. I think some people think that's a, not the greatest. A reach. Uh, exactly. It's, a, it's an overreach to say it's a reach to say that, uh, you know, an Iron Dome system can fall into the hands of, of Iran if, if Ukraine loses uh, the war. But, you know, this is what he is trying to say to the international community. All this going on, we've talked a lot about Israel, and yet it's funny, Jews in Europe, and I suspect actually uh, in the United States and in other places, 
the the story that may have you know chilled them most from the week would be nothing to do with Israel very far away indeed in fact a kind of local election story uh, mm -hmm. which normally people would not be paying attention to I think is uh, the one that may have had a few people feeling anxious and that is um, a, an election of the far-right alternative for Deutschland party in a district council election in Germany that party winning at that level for the first time uh, in what several uh, commentators have said is a watershed moment in the country's politics. It happened in the east of Germany. I think people know that the AFD have done particularly well in the formerly communist part of the country, one of those sort of superficially paradoxical uh, states of affairs, but when you think about it, perhaps not that paradoxical. The eastern town of Sonneberg in Thuringia uh, elected uh, a politician from the AFD to the equivalent post of mayor with a you know you know by a big margin uh 52.8 percent of the vote uh beating handsomely the uh christian democrat candidate uh, uh, the reason why this got a lot of attention is that the afd party anyway has been associated with the far right and you know you just have to write the words far right in the same sentence as germany to have uh people in general and i would say jews uh feeling edgy but it's the particular politics of this wing of the party in Turingia, um, which has been watched by the intelligence services in the country and is thought to be part of the, the right of the right, you know, the far right wing of the AFD, the Volkish wing, uh, which, again, it doesn't, you don't need to be a fluent German speaker to know why that um, is, has a troubling echo. That wing has officially been disbanded, but um, it's been long believed to sort of still exist under uh, under the radar or under the surface, as you like. And the fear is that just the symbolism of winning an election, holding an office, a kind of mayoral office, will uh, give the AFD a kind of legitimacy and a kind of platform for it to... Uh, push further in future uh, contests particularly in that eastern part of the country there are parliamentary elections at regional level coming up next year um, and so you have that warning you have that process again that we're very familiar with where liberal parties and all the mainstream ones social democrats on the left cdu on the right all kinds of civil society society organizations warning that defenders of democracy need to unite i say familiar because it's that same dynamic you had a bit in france when uh, a le pen is on the ballot paper and suddenly all the mainstream parties of left or right say okay we've got to put aside our own party differences and unite to um, fight democracy. And the main Jewish group in the country, the Central Council of Jews here, uh, in Germany, said it was devastated uh, by this result. They didn't want to criticise everyone who voted for it, but they said the party's candidate they have elected is, according to intelligence, a right-wing extremist. This is the bursting of a dam, mm -hmm. uh, which the political powers in this country cannot just sort of brush off. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, some anxiety there whenever Germany, which we should also say is in many ways the most liberal country in Europe and the country that has done most to reckon with and look in the face the events of the Second World War um, with greater It, it has also done most to perpetrate others. them. So, you know, it kind yeah, of works. <laughs> that's right. And uh, but, you know, people will get worried. Yeah, I mean, this kind it, of thing is it, going on. it sends shivers down your spine, doesn't it? I mean, in this polls... 
one out of five Germans say they will vote for this party. It is, it's frightening. It really is. And not only for, for German Jews. I think it's, it's incredibly frightening. Yeah. Uh, we should uh, hand out uh, some awards, I think. Um, tradition is tradition, my friend. We are all about tradition. I will kick things off with a Mensch Award uh, to the French woman who is set to become her country's first Orthodox female rabbi. Now, people who are not steeped in the sort of internals of the Jewish world may not know that, yes, there are rabbis and women rabbis, and there have been for a long time, but they tend to be in the non-Orthodox streams of Judaism, Reform Judaism and the like, have had women rabbis for decades. The Orthodox world, in some ways, is almost defined by the fact that it's very closely sticks to the rule that says rabbis have to be men and that's uh, been sort of iron uh, in Israel and beyond but after graduating from an American rabbinical program this very month Miriam Ackerman Sommer age 26 uh, has been running uh, one of Paris's only modern orthodox congregations along with her husband uh, he also has gained his rabbinical degree this month. Um, and so she, uh, but she went to this school, Yeshivat Maharat, which has this you know, program uh, for uh, women to qualify in effect as, as a rabbi uh, able to serve in orthodox spaces. Um, this will be a big deal. Um, France is, still has one of the biggest Jewish communities outside Israel or America, home to some 450,000 Jews. And to see uh, a woman who identifies as Orthodox lead uh, a congregation is a big deal. My, it's my view that in the next three or four decades, this, this dam is going to burst in the wider Orthodox world and that, the, uh, and that mainstream Orthodox congregations will see women rabbis and you'll see only the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim, stand aside. That's one of my evidence-free predictions for many decades to come, but I feel that's coming and this is another sign in that direction. I make predictions it's things that will happen in two months. You make predictions it's in decades. How do we ever know that it's going to come true? That's why okay, I made the I... predictions. You've, <laughs> you've rumbled me. So, okay. Um, it falls to me, surprise, surprise, to give the Chutzpah Award, and we are giving it to the Israeli Knesset. We may have mentioned them once or twice in this program today, but specifically because of what happened yesterday in the Knesset plenum, um, member of uh, Knesset, Sharon Haskel, she's from the National Unity Party, that's uh, Benny Gantz's party. She was trying to present a bill, but she did it with her uh, young daughter. She's 11 months old, Gabriel, and she was in a sling, sort of a baby carrier, and she wanted to step up and, and she started talking, but the Speaker of the House uh, and his uh, substitute said to, the, to her, listen, according to the rules of the Knesset, you can't stand up here with a person who isn't a member of Knesset, so you can't actually do this. She was really insulted. She said, listen, we can't be a place that sort of wants to show women how to, you know, integrate their life and their career and their motherhood and not allow me to speak. I mean, obviously, it's my baby. I can't leave her alone. She'll she'll start crying and let me just go through this. But she wasn't allowed to. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's just um, a little bit strange and, you know, I think I, I think we can give them the chutzpah award of the week. I, I think we can. And there's an interesting uh, symmetry or asymmetry between our two award recipients this week. And it's just you the story that, huh? of women's progress in the Jewish world is very often one step forward, one step back. So an advance yeah. in France uh, balanced out or in, in some ways, you know, offset you 
pessimistically would think, uh, by a step back in Israel, but um, both ongoing. What you were trying to say is you made our listeners happy and I came out with my party pooping story and ruined the mood a little bit. That yeah. was the balancing act you were actually referring to. <laughs> uh, the, the, well, I was thinking that, you know, it's like we're getting, we could this we could turn this into diaspora versus Israel rivalry. <laughs> uh, but notch one up for the, for the diaspora, for the wider Jewish world this week. But, um, you know, often... Uh, these awards will go in the reverse direction. Uh, if you have enjoyed Unholy this week, please do uh, spread the word. I was glad to say I was at an event uh, this week where many people came up to me and said how much they love listening to Unholy. But a special shout out to the woman who came up to me and said, and I do spread the word. Um, I do, I promise you, <laughs> just so like sweet. you say every that week, so I sweet. always tell friends and others to listen to it. So, uh, so obviously, it's getting the message is getting through. I've been repeating it often. But thank you to all of you who are indeed spreading the word. We will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Rom Atik, Snir Yamin, and Yair Bashan. And we will meet next week. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.